I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling, That's My Daddy. It's a message that I feel I live. And when I minister, I minister out of what I know, out of what I live. I don't do textbook stuff. I don't go and play in somebody else's sandbox and try to minister their stuff. If I'm not living it, if it's not a revelation in my heart, then I just don't minister it. What I want you to see really through the message today is that the hearts of our children, the identity, I think is even a better word, the identity of our children are restored through an up-close and personal image of what a father looks like. To be honest with you, I find it really therapeutic almost. I find it exhilarating and liberating that I can call God Daddy. I can call Him Papa. For the first probably 15 years of my Christian walk, there is no way I would have called Him Daddy. There is no way I would have called Him Papa. This is what grace has done to my heart. It has liberated my heart. About a year and a half ago, I met a man and shortly after I met him, he began to tell me, you know, we meet together with a group of guys occasionally, several times a month. We have like a little breakfast and a little Bible study. And he says, uh, I think one of these days I'm going to give you an invitation to come and be part of that group. I said, okay, well, just let me know. And uh, sometime after that, he said to me, well, he said, now I want you to know, these guys that I meet with are intellects. They are businessmen. They are Real smart guys. I said, okay. He said, I noticed that you call God daddy once in a while. I'd caution you not to do that in front of these guys because I'm telling you, they'll lose their religious minds. I said, well, friend, you got the wrong guy to be inviting then because I'm not hiding who the father is to me. Now listen, I'm not going out of my way to stick a thorn in you, but if I've got to watch my every word, you ever have friends like that? I mean, people, maybe they're just colleagues or whatever. You got to watch every little thing you say, otherwise they just blow it out of proportion, you know, and you offend them and whatever it may be. How many of you have had someone in your life like that before? It's hard to be around people like that. You just try to love them, but man, you finally reach the point like, I'm kind of afraid almost to engage in conversation with you because you might take it wrong. I said, they're not ready to meet me then because I'm not hiding who he is to me. An epidemic of hiding the fathers has gradually swept across the landscape of our world. And we call that epidemic fatherlessness. This emotional debilitating virus has tiptoed away with the voice of our children, the very voices that at once cried, that's my daddy. Did you know that America leads the industrialized world in fatherlessness? Over 40% of every little boy and girl that's born is born to a single mother. Now, if you look at the demographic of 30 years and younger for women having babies, which, by the way, make up two-thirds of all the babies being born, then that number increases to 55%. 55% of all the babies from mothers that are 30 years and younger are born to fatherless homes. They're born to single mothers. I find that statistic alarming. I find it disheartening that the family quilt, if you will, is so uncherished so underestimated, so uncelebrated. And I find it unsettling that so many children are born into this life with the void of the daily presence of a father. I believe that the absence of fathers disillusions and exasperates children. And the reason this began to drip in my heart is I've been talking to Papa about this. I said, Daddy, why are we in the situation that we're in today? You know, as I look at the adult population and I understand their values and I hear what's coming out of them, 
why are we in this situation today? And the father always reminds me, they were children at one time too. Nobody's born an adult, right? I mean, even Jesus was born a baby in a manger. So everybody was born a child. And so it begins in that stage of what we begin to drip into their hearts, what we begin to put into those children's hearts. And I believe without the father in the home, it hardens their emotions. I believe it sets their hearts on trajectories that are in the opposite direction that God wants them to go. Did you know that there are 10,080 minutes in a week, in a seven-day period, 10,080 minutes? Out of that 10,080 minutes, the average little schoolboy spends just 30 minutes in one-on-one conversation with his father. Now, I want you to contrast that for a moment against this. That same little precious boy who's got a bright future in God spends between 45 and 50 hours a week in front of a television, in front of a video game, in front of a computer, in front of a a handheld device, electronic device of some sort. 45 hours is 2,700 minutes. 50 hours is 3,000 minutes. Let's do the math. 30 minutes with daddy. 3,000 minutes in front of electronics. That's 100 times more time that's spent in front of electronic things. And I'm not saying they're bad, but I'm just saying we need fathers. Because it doesn't take a giant leap where we have a father that's disconnected with their children to have that spill over into the spiritual realm, have that spill over into the realm of trying to understand who the heavenly father is. The result of that inequality is that boys in particular are not spending time with mentors. They're not spending time with elders, with spiritual coaches, with spiritual leaders and teachers. And they're certainly not spending time with their fathers. I'm talking about the men that are responsible, the men that show these little boys and girls how they're supposed to treat their future wives. How do they show them? By how they treat their mama. Those little kids are watching. And how you treat mama generally will be how that boy will treat his wife when he grows up. So if you're good and kind to your wife, you have modeled that. And that little boy will grow up into a man someday and he'll have seen that pattern and that's what he knows. That is his default to be good and kind to my wife and he'll do that as well. I'm talking about the very men who are supposed to teach their children trades and skills and craftsmanship so that when they grow up, they know what it's like to go get a job and work hard to provide for your family. Listen, friends, I want to tell you something. There is nothing wrong with working hard. I believe in working hard, not for my salvation. My salvation's a finished work. But I don't lay around on my couch at home and say, I'm not going to work. That doesn't work very well. We need to learn how to work hard. And it comes from modeling it. You know what? Jesus spent 30 years in a carpenter shop. I don't know what he was making, lawn ornaments, you know, knickknacks, furniture. Who knows what he was making? Doors to hang on your house. He was in a carpenter shop working with his daddy, working with Joseph. Joseph would have been speaking into his heart. Joseph's a man of God, man. It's not recorded, but that doesn't mean there was just total silence. Joseph wasn't just going, let me just get my 30 minutes in and then Let's just get to work, son. I bet there was communication all day long. I'm talking about the very men who model the gracious heart of God so that their children, when they grow up, won't have to hide their earthly daddies. They're not embarrassed by them. They won't have to hide their heavenly father because they're not embarrassed by them. At Christmas time when we gather together in a large room at my work to celebrate Christmas and eat a meal together, finally the president of the company said, well, aren't we going to pray? And uh, they said, yeah, let's pray. Mark, let's pray. Man, I just went into prayer 
calling him daddy and everything else. I mean, I've got a room of 50, 60 some people. I could care less what you think about what I say and what I call him. I just began to say, daddy, oh man, you know me when I get going. At the same time, I'll be honest with you, as I was praying, as I was releasing that, there was a part of me going, man, I bet they're not liking this. When I got done, man, I've never seen this happen before in my life. They all stood up and clapped. I'm like, over a prayer? And most of these people don't know the Lord, you know? I think what they saw and what they heard that day was something authentic. And that's what we need. We need authentic Christianity. We need to be authentic believers. Don't hide anything. Don't suppress. Don't try to be so religious that you don't let daddy out of the bag once in a while, okay? I could care less. At the same time, I'm not so radical that I say and do dumb stuff that I got to reel back in, you know? I don't like doing that either. Like every cause and effect, you know what cause and effect is, right? Like every cause and effect, fatherlessness has created its own action and then reaction. Our children, hear my heart on this thing, are imploding. An implosion is the opposite of an explosion. An explosion is where energy and matter fly outward. An implosion is where energy and matter collapse inward. In other words, what I'm saying here is an implosion is caused by having a greater pressure or a greater force on the outside of something than what's on the inside. Kind of like a balloon. If you had a balloon in your hand, how many of you know inside that balloon there's pressure? That's what that air has done. It's created pressure to blow that balloon up. But if you put enough outside pressure on that balloon, what's going to happen? It's going to let go. And I think our kids, honestly, are and, and adults too, of course, but I think our kids are really dealing with some pressures because they're searching for identity. And that's really kind of what this message is about. They're searching for identity. Who am I? Who do I belong to? Where am I going at in life? They're searching deeply, and they don't even know what they're searching for, but they're searching for identity. They're under pressure to perform. They're under pressure sometimes just to survive. They're under pressure to discover this identity. And I believe that one of the most crushing pressures people face today is the lack of identity. Again, like I said, who am I? Who do I belong to? Where am I going? And a lot of that comes from ministers that still teach the Old Covenant. In other words, they teach that your identity is hidden in the Old Covenant. And under the Old Covenant, you really don't know who you are apart from work. You don't understand who you are apart from performance. And how do you perform well enough? I remember when we would go to church, I forget, I think it was Blue Stars. I think that was the best star you could get. If you brought a friend, you got this little chart, you know, all these blue stars on there, you know. Children in particular, they're searching for acceptance. They're searching for identity. Who am I? And if they don't have some sort of metric that says, you've been doing good, look at all the blue stars you've got, they don't understand where they're at in life. Their identity, quite often, like adults too, can get entrenched in servants, not sons. That is mistaken identity. You get entrenched in, I'm a servant, not a son. Well, you might say I'm a son as well, but I'm a servant. We are sons who serve. Our identity is not servant. We are not servants that become sons. We are sons that serve. What am I doing today? I'm a son that's serving. I'm serving you bread. I'm serving you manna. We see this truth in John chapter 1 and verse 12. Look what it says. It says, but as many, who's many? That's us. As received him, that's Jesus. To them, that's us. Gave he, that's Jesus, the power to become the sons of God, that's us. Even to them, that's us that believe on his name. That's Jesus. <laughs> that, that scripture's all about Jesus and us. Did you ever notice that Jesus ends with us? Jesus. 
That scripture is all about the Father and Christ and the Holy Spirit. But he says, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become sons of God, even to them which believe on his name. When it says power there, that is not dunamis, which is what we normally hear in the Greek. This one is exousia, which means the ability. It means the privilege. We have the privilege. We have the ability to become sons of God. How? By believing on his name, period. Don't add anything to it. We believe in his name, believe on his name. He does that creative miracle in our hearts. And suddenly we have identity. What's our identity? Sons of God. That's my identity. Once a son, always a son. Our identity is not servant. We are sons that serve. If you laid a picture in front of my sons and said, who is that? I guarantee they wouldn't say, oh, that's Mark Testerman. If you laid a picture in front of my sons and said, who is that? I'm 100% sure they wouldn't say that. Well, that's Pastor Mark. You see, both of those answers are correct. But that's not who I am to them. I'm up close. I'm personal. And when I reach out there and call God, Daddy, I know it makes some people lose their religious minds. Well, just go ahead and lose your religious mind. You'd be better off without it, right? That's my daddy, they would say. That picture... That's my daddy. In other words, they would pin me with proper identity to them. In Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, we find these words. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, and how many of you know if we are born again, we are led by the Spirit of God. For many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, there it goes, Abba, Abba. You know, I mean, a baby could say that. Abba. He's probably saying Baba, but he's saying Abba, Abba. A baby, a baby, a little baby could say Abba. I find it interesting, really, to be honest with you, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew version of father is Two letters, Aleph, Bet, Ava, Aleph, Bet. Father is Aleph, Bet is son, son and father. <laughs> Who's your daddy? God's our daddy. Have you ever heard of anybody refer to God as the man upstairs? That statement reveals that they don't know him as Abba. They don't know him as daddy. They do not know him as Papa. How many of you have heard him referred to as a higher power? I'm telling you, they don't know him as Abba. They don't know him as Daddy. They don't know him as Papa. Or you couldn't call him a, just a higher power. What? Yeah, is that true? Yes. Is he a man? Yeah, Jesus is a man. Is he upstairs? Well, yeah, he's upstairs, I guess. So, I mean, all of that's true, but he's not up close and personal when you look at him like that. I don't refer to daddy like that. Why? Because that's my daddy. He's not just upstairs. He's up close and personal. We've raised up a generation that wrestles with misplaced or stolen identity. Many boys and girls do not know how to deal with the pressures they face because they, quite honestly, have learned very minimal coping skills. And because, quite often, they look to only their own strengths, their own power, their own intellect. They don't look to the sources that God has. The Bible says, I can do all things through Christ. It doesn't say, I can do all things through college. It doesn't say, I can do all things through just some other way. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. How does he strengthen us? He strengthens our mind first. He strengthens our heart. Satan has embezzled the weapon of that's my daddy. I'm telling you what, that's a weapon. When you learn that 
that's my daddy. And my daddy loves me. And my daddy's for me. And my daddy will protect me. And my daddy will stand with me. That is a weapon that you have. What's it a weapon against? Fear? Intimidation? I mean, how else do you fight fear? How do you fight intimidation? How do you fight these things? You do it by standing with identity. Understanding that the Father that created the whole universe. I mean, come on, folks. Open your hearts. Enlarge your minds for just a second. Think about what He can do. And He didn't just randomly sprinkle the stars out there. He hung them one by one and gave them a name. I'm going to remember your name. I'm going to remember your name. I'm going to remember your name. He hung everything out there. Billions and trillions and gazillions of things in the sky, in the outer space. And the Father put it all there. Now, that same daddy lives on the inside of us. And it was his idea to come and live on the inside of us. It wasn't our idea. We weren't even thinking about him. The Bible says, why we were yet sinners, while we were yet ungodly, when we weren't thinking about him, Christ came and died for us. Beautiful. Most of you have heard at least a portion of my story. I won't go into the whole thing. It's a long story about how in 2004 it was, I packed my suitcase and sent my pulpit ministry on a 10-year vacation. <laughs> That's the best way I can say it. What was I doing during those 10 years? Being a daddy. That's what it was about. I was teaching my boys about their identity as sons and demonstrating what a daddy looks like to his children. That's what I was doing in those 10 years. Showing them how to be a husband to their mama, modeling the gracious heart of the father so that they could see that they don't have to hide who he is. I was restoring the voice of that's my daddy and I watched as God delivered a death blow to the 30 minute clock of one-on-one -on -one conversation with my boys that's what I was doing you say man pastor Mark that doesn't sound very spiritual oh, friends that's very spiritual very spiritual remember it says those that are the sons of God are led by the spirit I want you to know something. My flesh didn't lead me into being a more responsible daddy. My flesh didn't do that any more than Jesus' flesh led him into the desert to fast for 40 days and 40 nights and be tempted of the devil. That wasn't flesh that led him. The Bible says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterwards hungry. Then Satan came along and said, if you really are the Son of God, what was he doing? He was saying, I want you to question your identity for just a moment. Do you see how slick he is sometimes? How conniving he is? But here Satan comes along and says, if you really are the Son of God, command that stone to become bread. And Jesus said, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And of course, he tried that a couple more times and finally just said, get out of here. You bother me. But because of that single decision that I made, my grown sons can say to this day, that's my daddy. They became the beneficiaries of that sacrifice and they experienced a love and devotion from a father they would not have gotten had I stayed in pulpit ministry and ignored them basically on the weekend. Do you see why this is dripping in my heart? And you can see why, as I opened this message, how I said, this is the way daddy's been talking to me lately. He's saying, son, I know you're in ministry, but sometimes you forget, I can do things overnight that you can't do in a lifetime. I can do things in a moment. The Bible says he can heal the sin of the land in a day. My son Tyler was living in North Carolina for several years, and about a year ago, he moved to a, another state. He loves to bowl, and he's a very good bowler, and he went to the bowling alley. And when you go to the bowling alley, people learn your name because you have to register, you know. And they had him subbing on a couple of leagues, and a man walked up to him one day and saw his name. He said, Tyler Testerman? 
He said, is your daddy Mark? This is 300 miles away. And Tyler had that bewildered look like, oh boy. He said, yeah. And he's looking at the guy like, how would you know that? And, I, and the guy is picking up on the way Tyler's looking at him. And he says, yeah, he gets angry a lot and likes to fight, right? And Tyler said, no, somebody shares my daddy's name, but that's not my daddy. My daddy does not get angry a lot. My daddy does not like to fight. Do you see this, man? In the quietness of Tyler's heart, he reached an instant decision that this man was referring to somebody else. And as I thought about that yesterday, I thought, our Heavenly Father has virtues, and He has a character that is unparalleled. Religion will paint our Father, the Father God, in images that do not accurately reflect His heart. That's what religion will do. They will paint Him with a belt in His hand. They will paint Him with a gavel in His hand. They will paint Him with a remote in His hand. Friends, I've come by today to tell you the Father is not here to beat you. The Father is not here to judge you. And the Father is not here to control you. He has given us free will. He has given us His heart. And He has given us the Holy Spirit to help us with all those things that pertain to life and godliness. That's what He's done. Under an old covenant mentality, you'll never call Him Daddy. You'll go all your life and you'll say, no, I can't do that under an old covenant mentality where I'm always working to please you because it's all fear-based. It's all either you do it or else. But when all the fear is stripped away and it's just you and Papa, you and Daddy standing there and there's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no fear, there's no condemnation, there's no judgment, there's no remote control where he's going to control everything you do. He's saying, son, whatever we do, let's do it together. You're not going to get it exactly right every single time, but that's okay. Jesus probably didn't get it right in the carpenter shop every time. He probably had to scrap some things too. He was a growing boy. Doesn't mean he did everything perfect. I mean, the fact that he stayed behind, didn't tell his mom and daddy about it. I mean, come on, man. If I had a 12-year-old that stayed behind and we went on vacation somewhere, that 12-year-old boy would be in trouble, man. He would. He gave us the sweet Holy Spirit as a helper. What does he help us do? He helps us pack the suitcase of religion and send it away. You see, friends, it was during that 10-year marination that the seasonings of daddy's love daddy's grace daddy's mercy daddy's kindness daddy's finished work daddy's everlasting covenant all that began to meld together like a pot of stew in my heart and i'm like oh daddy i see this and it was during that season of marination that i have to be honest with you it kind of felt like daddy had changed my name it felt like daddy had changed my identity, or at least the way I saw it. And then I realized that the father has been in the name changing, identity changing business for a long time. God changed Sarai's name to Sarah. God changed Saul's name to Paul. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. God changed Simon's name to Peter. And God changed Abram's name to Abraham. You know what he did when he changed Abram's name to Abraham? He just added the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, He. It means grace. He took that name Abram and said, I know that means the father of nations. I don't want to scrap the meaning of that, but you're going to need grace, son. So let's just take He and insert it right into the middle of your name, Abraham. The father of faith just received grace. Friends, that's where life comes from. It's when faith and grace are mixed together. Faith and grace come together. It produces life. It produces the promised child. Before he changed Abram's name, did you know that he cut a covenant? Now, this is before the name change. He cut a covenant of righteousness with Abram. What did that look like? 
God cut a covenant with Abram, and then he changed his name. I want you to see what the covenant looked like. And I've ministered along these scriptures before, but they're so precious to me. Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 through 18. And he brought him forth abroad, that's Abram, and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. What did Abram do? He believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness, a type and shadow of our righteousness, okay? And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Why so many animals? I think what we're able to see through this type and shadow is any of these animals were acceptable when you brought them to God for a sacrifice. When the sacrifices eventually came, any of these animals were satisfactory. If you were poor, you couldn't afford a heifer. If you were middle class, you might not be able to afford a sheep or a goat. So you'd bring a turtle dove or you'd bring a pigeon, something that was very affordable for you. And it's really just an economic system that God has built in. But in Abraham, he's saying, I want you to bring it all. I'm asking you to bring it all, Abraham. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. In other words, he cut these animals in two and laid some down one side, some down another side, and a path down the middle for people to be able to walk through. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, look what it says, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. I mean a deep sleep, like comatose type sleep. And lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs and shall serve them. And they shall afflict them 400 years. He is prophesying what's going to happen as the Israelites will go into bondage in Egypt. And also that nation whom they serve will I judge, and afterward they will come out with great substance. And that all happened as we know. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Look at what it says. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces in the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. The smoking furnace and the burning lamp that Abram saw in the dream while he slept was actually a type and shadow of God and Jesus. And what were they doing? Ratifying the covenant. The smoking furnace is a manifestation of God and the burning lamp is Jesus Christ. They are walking past each other between the pieces and they are cutting the covenant with one another while Abraham or Abram sleeps. In other words, in this narrative, we see a foreshadowing of the new covenant that we are under today, a covenant that was cut between God and his son Jesus at the cross while we were yet dead in our sins, while we were asleep in our trespasses. The prophet Isaiah reaches back into the book of Genesis and with a similar motif, he summarizes with a handful of words the new covenant that's coming. The covenant whereby we become completely righteous by grace through faith. The covenant where we can proclaim, that's my daddy. We see this truth in Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 and 2. He says, for Zion's sake, and Zion just means the people of God, okay? For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. Do you see how he's reached back and picked up that same motif, that same jargon that Moses wrote about in Genesis? He's referring to a brightness. He's referring to a burning lamp. And he says, 
and the Gentiles shall see. Well, Abraham, we know, was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. He says, and the Gentiles, even starting from Abraham, shall see thy righteousness, which Abraham did. He saw the righteousness of God. Remember, it was credited to him as righteousness. And all the kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name. Did he give Abram a new name? Yes, he went from Abram to Abraham. Put the grace in there. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. And that's exactly what God did. God from his mouth said, you shall be called Abraham. Now, let's look at verses 3 through 5, but let's look at them through the message paraphrase. The prophet Isaiah said, you will be a stunning crown in the palm of God's hand, a jeweled gold cup held high in the hand of your God. No more will anyone call you rejected, and your country will no more be called ruined. You see, when people hear names like this, it changes their identity if they're not established in it. When you reject someone, what they're basically saying is, I don't like who you are. And so what we do is either we crawl into a shell or we try to change so that we please people. Nobody can be a better you than you. And so you begin to feel this rejection. You begin to feel like this chaos, this ruin. And he says, no more will anyone call you rejected and your country will no longer be called ruined. You'll be called Chesavah. I love that name. It's a beautiful name. Chesavah. It means my delight. This is what God is saying. This is what I'm going to call you. Remember, we've given you a new name. Remember, we've given you righteousness. Because of that, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to call you Hesaba, which means my delight. Oh, that children would hear their daddies and their mama saying, I delight in you, son. I delight in you, daughter. Build that into their hearts when they're young. You will be called Hesavah, and your land, Beulah, married. Friends, that's what we need in homes. We need married couples, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, raising their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and His great grace. The land will be called Beulah, which means married, because God delights in you, and your land will be like a wedding celebration. For as a young man marries his virgin bride, so your builder marries you as a bridegroom is happy in his bride, so your God is happy with you. Isn't that beautiful? To know, I mean, come on, think about your wedding day one time. This is a special day for you. There's a lot of planning, a lot of thought, a lot of tears, a lot of effort, a lot of things that have went into this special day. And then you've got a man, you've got a woman that stands across from you and says, you are my delight. This marriage shall never be rejected. This marriage shall never be ruined. What is the message that the prophet Isaiah's words communicate to us in a generation that's drunk on fatherlessness? Ask yourself that question. I had to pause when I was writing this message and said, Daddy, what is the message between what Moses said and between what Isaiah said? If we just shuffle them together, we meld those together, what is the message that we can walk away with for the fabric of our family today? And he said these words to me, You are not a statistic, and your identity cannot be measured in demographics. Your birth certificate may read unknown in the space that's reserved for your daddy's name, but you are known by the Father. You are a stunning crown in the palm of God's hand, a jeweled gold cup held high in the hand of your God. God says you are cherished. God says you are celebrated. And I have set your heart on a trajectory that will meet with grace and truth. He is telling us that under grace, 
Our children are not going to implode and they're not going to explode. All the pressures that cause us to perform, all the pressures that cause us to go into survival mode and to search for identity through television screens, through the bottle, through the arms of a lover, they have all been taken away as your builder marries you and declares the words over you. You are my delight. I am happy with you. I'm satisfied with you, the father is saying. I don't need to look anywhere else. I'm satisfied with you. I'm 100% satisfied with you. There's no room for improvement with me and you. I'm satisfied with you. You see, I knew what you were like before I married you. In true marriages, we go into discovery mode after we get married. We start learning things, but God knew everything about us. And he said, I'm going to call you Hesaba. I'm going to call you my delight. And I'm going to take you to the land of Beulah. I'm going to marry you in that land. Isaiah is saying, I'm going to show you what peace and rest and righteousness looks like, even in your dreams. I'm going to reveal to you what an intact family smells like and sounds like and walks like and sleeps like. I'm talking about a home that no longer accepts the model of fatherlessness, a home where the father is present every day to tuck his little darlings in at night and to pray over them as he whispers the heart of the father into their little hearts. There's just something about it, friends. Children get their identities from their fathers. And if you have fatherlessness going on, then you can see why we have this identity crisis. I'm very passionate about this. Isaiah is talking about a father that spends time telling his sons and daughters that God delights in them and that he will never reject them and that they will never come to ruin. A father that turns the hearts of the children back to the smoking furnace and the burning lamp. Isaiah's message reaches back even to the Abrahamic covenant where it took place and it reminds us that we were on our back sleeping. We didn't contribute to the covenant. We were sound asleep. We were dead in our trespasses at one time when that covenant was cut. We were fast asleep. And what did the father do? The father said, listen, son, you don't even need to chase away the birds. I'll take care of that. See, that's what Abram was trying to do. The birds were coming down after he cut the pieces. The vultures were coming down to eat the meat. And Abraham's trying to shoo them all away. And the father said, no, I'm just going to put you to sleep because in the end, you're going to say you helped. And this is a work of my hand. This is a work of my heart. You didn't help at all in this covenant. It was my idea to marry you. Praise his name. Friends, it happened the same way at the cross. God cut covenant with himself and his son Jesus Christ while we've slept in our trespasses. Isaiah's prophecy, I'm telling you, it's big, it's straight, and it's plain. His message is a message that restores this generation back to the words, back to the decoration. That's my daddy. As I was sitting at my desk yesterday and I was just pondering, just meditating, a thought came to me and I, I had to look it up. I thought, how will the Old Testament end? I mean, here's this gigantic canon of 39 books. How's this thing going to end? What are going to be the final words out of that Old Testament system? Malachi, we know, is the last prophet in there. What is his last words as it closes and moves to the New Testament? You want to see it? Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. This is how it ends. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Look at the words. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Look at what Malachi did. He ended it with saying, you know what? This relationship between daddy and son is really, really super important. And over time... You didn't quite make the course corrections you probably should have. And what it did is it separated a father, a natural father from his son's heart. But he said, I'm going to send a man. 
who's going to turn back the hearts of their fathers to their children and the children's hearts back to their fathers. He said, I'm going to send you Elijah, is what he said. Now, how many of you have read the story about Elijah? He's in heaven, isn't he? Elijah's not in the grave. Elijah's in heaven. Remember, he was taken up in a whirlwind, right? He never saw a death. Elijah and Enoch were the only two that never saw a death that we can see in the Bible. So the question is, is Malachi's closing thoughts really about the prophet Elijah? He said right there, I will send you Elijah. They're not about Elijah. Malachi is talking about John the Baptist, the one who would come in the spirit of Elijah. In fact, they were similar. They both wore camel skin coats and they both cried in the wilderness. I mean, they were very similar people. And he said, I'm going to send you Elijah, but he was talking about John the Baptist, who I'm going to send in the spirit of Elijah. How do we know that? Because we see the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy in Luke chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah in the temple, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But an angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. How many of you know that John means grace? John in the Greek means grace. He, or grace, will be a joy, look what he says, and delight. Do you see this word coming up again? God said, you're my chesavah. You're my delight. Now he's prophesying about John the Baptist. He's saying, listen, this man's going to come with a message that's going to be so delightful to hear. He said, he will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He has never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. Look what he says now. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord, talking about John, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Do you see that? You didn't know those words were there, did you? See, it's reaching all the way back into Malachi. Malachi is pushing forward into the book here of Luke, but saying the exact same thing. He will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then he says to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What was John the Baptist, what was his cry originally? His cry was repent. Repent comes from the Greek word metanoia. Meta means to change. Noia means the mind. John's cry was change your mind. Start thinking like chesedah. Start thinking like you're his delight. Stop thinking like you're under this old covenant because we're moving through that. Start thinking differently. Know that the king of glory has given us a new name. We are not fatherless. We are sons that are led by the Spirit. We are never rejected or ruined. We are rested and righteous by grace through faith. So John the Baptist, his message began with repent, and it culminated when he saw Jesus walking toward him as he stood waist deep in the muddy Jordan, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who wants to marry you. Behold the Lamb of God who wants to take you to the land of Beulah. Behold the Lamb of God that wants to call you Chesavah, my delight. The question, how do we reverse the alarming trends of fatherlessness? I believe it begins by allowing the greatest mentor there is, the greatest coach there'll ever be, and the greatest father of all to whisper into our hearts from John 1.12 that I spoke about, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become not only the sons of God, but the fathers. Take our rightful place as father, become sons. See, I'm a son and a father at the same time. You're a daughter and a mother at the same time. But take our responsibility as fathers, even to them which believe on his name. We reverse this fatherlessness by spending time with our children, 
by declaring over them that they are a stunning crown in the palm of God's hand, a jeweled gold cup held high in the hand of your God. That's your identity, son. And to put that into their tender hearts at a, when they're just young little shoots, when everything is so believable, before they're hardened, to tell them that their identity is son, that your identity is daughter. We reverse fatherlessness by teaching and mentoring our children in the power of God's word and prayer. Don't ever underestimate prayer, the power of prayer. The power of prayer married together with God's word releases life. I got saved in 1995 and in the spring, I believe it was, of the following year, an evangelist came to town. That was 25 years ago. His name was Dr. Harold Hunter. And I went to a week-long set of meetings that he held. Dr. Hunter told the story of when he was preaching a crusade in the Bahamas. He said, I couldn't sleep one morning. So I decided to get up and walk along the shore. It was still dark out. He said, I hadn't walked very far. And I looked down, and a little boy was walking next to me. He said, I didn't say anything to him. He said, we walked along and that little boy got in step with me. And it wasn't long and he said, you're Brother Hunter, aren't you? He said, yeah. He said, you're holding the crusade down here at the crusade center, aren't you? He said, yeah. He said, you're staying at that hotel right next to the crusade center, aren't you? He said, yeah. He said, on the ninth floor, huh, Brother Hunter? He said, you know a lot about me, son. How is it you know so much about me anyway? And he said, that little boy began to cry. He said, Brother Hunter, he said, last night, he said, I was in my daddy's shop with him. And as you were preaching, your message was going out across the airwaves, across the Bahamas. And I saw my daddy for the first time, Brother Hunter, turn off his machines and turn up the radio and I saw him listen, Brother Hunter, and I thought to myself, if I can just get my daddy with Brother Hunter, my daddy's going to get saved. But my daddy's not going to go down to that crusade. He said, Brother Hunter, my daddy's an alcoholic. He drinks terrible. He beats my mama all the time. My mama's in the hospital again, Brother Hunter. He said, but Brother Hunter, you said something at the close of your message. You said, if you've got a need, just I don't care what it is, if you'll bring that need to God and you'll ask God to help you with that need, that he'll meet that need for you. He said, so Brother Hunter, I ask God in the humblest way I know how to get you down here on this beach this morning and to get my daddy down here on this beach this morning. He said, Brother Hunter, my daddy's going to get saved today. Oh, he doesn't even know it. He's going to be the happiest man on earth. Brother Hunter, my daddy's going to get saved. He said, son, does your daddy ever get up this time of the day? He said, oh, no, Brother Hunter, he sleeps in. He Does he ever come down to the beach? Oh, no, Brother Hunter, he never comes down here. Oh, but my daddy's going to get saved today, Brother Hunter. Isn't that wonderful? And Brother Hunter said, I said to that little boy, well, son, God's ways are not our ways. God works in mysterious ways. And he said it was like I slapped that little boy across the face when I said that. And that little boy looked at me and said, you didn't lie to me, did you, Brother Hunter? You didn't lie to me, did you, Brother Hunter? <laughs> he said, no, son, I didn't lie to you. Brother Hunter said under his breath he was saying father you better come through on this one he said they didn't walk much further and he said he looked down the beach and he saw a man walking toward him looked like he had the weight of the world on his shoulder and when that little boy saw him he said that's my daddy oh my daddy's gonna get saved today brother hunter and that little boy ran and hid under a, a beach umbrella and when that man got to brother hunter brother hunter introduced himself 
He said, I'm Brother Hunter. He said, I know I was listening to you last night. He said, your boy really loves you. He said, I love my little boy too. He said, Brother Hunter, I've tried to quit drinking. I really have. God knows I've tried to quit drinking. He said, I've went to all kinds of classes. I've taken pills. I've went to taking B12 shots. I've tried everything, but I can't quit drinking, Brother Hunter. And Brother Hunter said to him, you don't have to stop drinking. Just change what you're drinking. And as it was, he took him into the scriptures of John chapter 4, the woman at the well, and he said, it was there that he took a long, cold drink of living water. And when he did, he got so happy, he went and kicked that beach umbrella off his son, threw him up in the air, and he said, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved, boy, let's go home and tell your mama. And they walked off arm in arm. Several weeks later, Brother Hunter got a letter from that little boy. And among many things that that little boy wrote, he said, Brother Hunter, I don't know how to say this, but my daddy's still drinking. And then he wrote the words, living water. And then he wrote, P.S., gotcha, Brother Hunter. <laughs> Friends, I'm telling you, here's a little boy that was suffering from a father fracture. But a little boy that chose to say, I'm going to stand on what the Heavenly Father says. I'm going to put my trust in my daddy that won't lie to me. My daddy that won't slap me across the face. My daddy that won't control me. My daddy that won't beat me. My daddy that won't judge me. I'm going to put my faith in that daddy. And the miracle took place. Friends, the heartfelt truths that reach out to us from this word today are these. We won't lose our minds by calling God daddy. Oh, we might lose some luggage, but we won't lose our minds. In doing so, I believe that we bring him up close. We bring him up close and personal in our own hearts. He's not just the man upstairs, nor merely a higher power. He's our daddy, and we are his chesavah, his delight. It's only through Jesus' shed blood that we receive the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba. Papa, Abba, Daddy, Father. Through the earthly life of Jesus, we discover that 2,000 years ago, he packed the heavenly suitcase and came to earth. His pulpit ministry lay on hold for 30 years. What was Jesus doing during those silent years? Listening to his Father's heart and discovering his identity. He was marinating in his father's love and grace, and he was delivering a death blow to the clock of 30 minutes per week on one-on-one -on -one conversation with daddy. He was a chatterbox to daddy, waiting for the appointed time so that he could restore the voice of his daddy. If someone tries to paint for you an image of an angry God, one that likes to fight, one that holds the belt, one that gets angry, one that holds the gavel, one that holds the remote control, you remind them that your father is not abusive. He's not judgmental, and he does not control your every move. He has liberated you from fear, and you will never be rejected or ruined. You are a stunning crown, just like the scriptures say, in the palm of God's hand, a jeweled gold cup held high in the hand of your God. For as a young man marries his virgin bride, so also your builder marries you. As a bridegroom is happy in his bride, so your God is happy with you. Friends, we are no longer orphans. We are no longer widows. We are no longer strangers. We are no longer fatherless. The prophet Malachi said it best when he penned the words, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers so that our cry could be restored. What cry am I talking about? I'm talking about the cry of that's my daddy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Father, we just praise you. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you, Father. And I think we could all see ourselves within 
this narrative, this buffet of a story. Because every one of us have been challenged in our identity. Every one of us have been challenged in who are we? Where are we going? I want to thank you. It's a settled issue when you put a ring on our finger and gave us a new name. Chesava, my delight. You married us in the land of Beulah. So thank you, Father. Thank you for this grace. I want to thank you, Father, that we take to heart our role as parents. We take to heart our role as grandparents. Sometimes we may have to do what our own children are not willing to do. That's okay. Sometimes we may have to move over into a family that's not even related to us by blood and speak words of grace, words of truth into little children's heart as they're growing to let them know that their identity is in God. Their identity is in knowing the Father. Their identity is in being able to even call him Daddy. So I want to thank you, Father, as we are established in our identity. We are established in who you've made us to be. I want to thank you, Father. We are not moved. When someone comes to us and says, your father's angry, we say, that's a lie. Your father's judgmental against you. No, that's a lie. Your father's going to beat you. No, that's a lie. Your father is going to control your life. No, that's a lie as well. We want to thank you, Father, that whatever we do, we get to do together like father, like son, like daddy, like child. In Jesus' name, amen.